mercy is a wider subject than just somebody is guilty of something and they're getting off the hook, so to speak. It's a lot bigger than that. There's a lot more to mercy. You can show mercy to somebody who's in need. Maybe they didn't do anything to you. Maybe they're just in need and they need somebody to notice that they're suffering, somebody to notice that they are in trouble and to bend down and lift them up. That's an act of mercy because you can choose to do that. Nobody's forcing you to do it. Another thing that's a secondary element of mercy we've talked about that we're going to talk about especially tonight is forgiveness. Forgiveness is one of the most potent aspects of mercy. It's not a direct synonym with mercy in the Bible because mercy can represent several things. But in many cases, mercy is related to forgiveness. When we think about the mercy of God that we talked about last time on this subject, what do we think of when we're thinking about the mercy of God? That God forgave us. Sometimes we might think about the mercy of God in terms of things that God gave us that we didn't deserve. It wasn't just that he forgave our debt or forgave our sin or passed over us in judgment, so to speak, but maybe we needed something that we hadn't done anything to deserve that. It may not be forgiveness. It may be some strengthening agent of some other kind. I'll give you an example. When you were washed in the blood of Christ at your conversion, that was an act of mercy. You could tie grace into it as well. But when you received the Holy Spirit, you weren't being given the Holy Spirit because you deserved it. So it was mercy that God allowed you to have it. But you weren't being given the Holy Spirit to wash away sin in the present. The Holy Spirit is to give you the strength to deal with sin. But the Holy Spirit doesn't remove your sin. The blood of Jesus does that. And then the work of salvation that is a lot more detailed. We might touch on it some tonight with some of the statements in some of these passages we might look at. But that was an act of mercy that God gave you the Holy Spirit. Even though when you received the Holy Spirit, you weren't forgiven of all your past sins at the moment you received the Holy Spirit. That's what the blood's about. That's what faith and repentance are about. But Holy Spirit baptism gives you a power you didn't have before. It adopts you into a family you weren't part of before. That is an act of grace, but it's also an act of mercy because God didn't have to adopt you into his family. You weren't deserving of it. God didn't have to give you the power to serve him at the level he expects. None of us were deserving of it, were we? It's interesting just how involved mercy is in pretty much every aspect of the plan of salvation. Mercy is an integral part. And of course, grace and those two things. I talked about this in an earlier class. Sometimes we come up with catchy phrases to differentiate mercy and grace. And to some degree, some of those quotes that we have to describe the difference between mercy and grace can be accurate. But if you really study mercy and grace, they so heavily overlap, it's hard to tell the difference between the two. Many times in the Bible, they're not as simple as mercy is this and grace is this. Sometimes you're the beneficiary of both, and it's hard to tell the difference between which you're getting. Is God applying grace to you, or is God showing mercy, or is he doing both at the same time? I'd probably argue that many times mercy and grace are happening almost simultaneously. They're just two different sides of the same coin, really, that God is giving you something that is undeserved. We want to get into the 18th chapter of Matthew, which would be our next scripture I was going to talk about from the 20th verse down to the 35th. I'm going to read it quickly here, and then I'm going to go through it in some detail because there's some very interesting things in this 18th chapter of Matthew that I think are often missed. One reason they get missed is because people tend, when they're studying out a subject, to... I hate to keep using this phrase that I use quite often for this, but they tend to cherry pick verses or passages that they think are applicable to that subject without really looking at the whole context. When I'm talking about cherry picking, I'm talking about taking a verse or a few verses, say, out of a whole series of statements and making a point about those verses or that passage. The point may be accurate, it may not be accurate, but the best way to understand what that verse or verses is really addressing is that you have to spread out a little further than just a couple of verses. A lot of times you have to look at a lot bigger range than just the verse you're quoting. What was the subject the person was talking about? Who were they addressing? What did they say before they made that statement? What did they say after they made that statement? 
The only way you could really cherry pick a statement out, you can do this sometimes in the book of Proverbs, by the way, it's infamous for this. No, I don't mean that in a negative way. I just mean the way it's structured, it is well known for this. And it might be frustrating to some people, which is why I say it's infamous, because it's harder to get the context. Sometimes Proverbs are literally that, just a list of Proverbs that aren't necessarily chronologically arranged, so they're telling a story. Sometimes you can have two or three Proverbs or verses in the book of Proverbs in a row that are all talking about the same thing, and then the next verse totally changes the subject. It's talking about something entirely different. It doesn't even relate to the verses that preceded it. That's just the nature of the book of Proverbs. It's like a lot of quotations of wise sayings and spiritual comments that aren't necessarily set up like a sermon. That'd be the most confusing sermon ever preached if you're reading the book of Proverbs as your sermon and you're just going from verse to verse to verse because you could hear something and then it suddenly shifts gears the next verse. Some Proverbs, you'll notice that little paragraph mark, that little thing that tells you it's a new subject in some Bible. Some Proverbs, verse after verse after verse, new subject, new subject, new subject, because they're just not related to each other. I do not believe, as I said early on in our classes on the Sermon on the Mount, that the Sermon on the Mount is built like that. I think the Sermon on the Mount has a theme to it that runs all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. It isn't constantly changing themes. Jesus may seem like he's addressing a lot of different issues, but if you really consider what his overall subject is, it doesn't change. The overall subject is, what is it to be a citizen of the kingdom? What should citizens of the kingdom look like? What should children of God, if you want to get more specific in terms of the family of God that's within the kingdom, those are, I believe, two layers. I think you can be part of the kingdom before you truly are part of the family of God. But everyone's going to have to be a part of the family of God if they're going to be part of the eternal expression of the kingdom in terms of the kingdom that's going to last throughout eternity. We could say why I believe that for another class, perhaps, but the subject of the Sermon on the Mount is what it is to be a true citizen of the kingdom, a child of God that's a citizen of the kingdom. What kind of qualities do you have? What sort of things should you do? And what sort of things should you not do if you're going to be that person? And Jesus gets down below the surface of certain external type commandments to the motives behind the commandments. He gets down behind the surface of external expressions of obedience where people are not breaking the law externally, at least not in terms of the old covenant law, but in their heart, they're breaking the law. And he gets down below the surface level texture, so to speak, of the law where you cannot do this. It's not enough to say you can't do this. You can't even think about doing it. You can't be sitting there dwelling on it, which goes far deeper than what the Mosaic law does, what the law of Moses does. When I say Mosaic law, you realize I'm not talking about a mosaic of pictures. I'm talking about the law of Moses. So when you're reading through the Sermon on the Mount or when we're studying the Sermon on the Mount, you need to realize there's an overall subject that's going on in the Sermon on the Mount. If you are going through a Bible that is a red-letter Bible, that you can see the words of Jesus, which most red-letter Bibles are, I'm going to say it just like this, all right, extremely accurate. I didn't say 100% accurate. There's a couple things in some red-letter Bibles I don't think were words of Jesus, but they attributed them to Jesus. All you have to do is just look at the context, you realize Jesus couldn't have been saying that. There's at least one statement John makes that it's clear John was making about Jesus when he's talking about him being in heaven while Jesus is standing there talking. It's an editorial statement that he's saying that about Jesus. He was recording Jesus' message, and then he was making a point about Jesus, and then the message went on. You have to be wise enough and thinking about the context and overall message to catch those things. But that'd be another subject for another Bible study. You want to get into that? We can talk about that. But we're going to try to stay on this theme tonight, unless the Spirit moves us otherwise. But there are themes to Jesus' messages. So when you get into the 18th chapter of Matthew, which is in the Sermon on the Mount, but this is a very powerful chapter about mercy and about forgiveness, you cannot just pluck out what I'm about to read, the 21st through the 35th verse. I'm going to read that, but then I'm going to go back and tell you what came before it, because there is a building message here. If you look at your Bible, and again, if it's a red-letter edition, 
You'll see it. Jesus is talking all through here. He doesn't start talking in the 21st verse. That's when Peter comes to him and asks him a question. And then Jesus responds after that. But he was already talking before Peter asked him the question throughout that chapter up until the point Peter asked him the question. So you need to get the context. And it doesn't tell us. It could be possible. It was hours after he said things that ended in the 20th verse that Peter then came to him in the 21st. But I'm not sure it was that long. I think this was kind of a back-to-back discussion because you'll see there is a themes to this entire chapter. I'm going to give you an example in this chapter of a verse that people tend to cherry pick, that cherry picking this verse out about judgment while missing what went before it and what goes right after it will seriously misconstrue some things in terms of what the focus is. All right, let me read Matthew 18, 21 to 35. It says, Peter came to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times? Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him, which owed him ten thousand talents. But forasmuch as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, and his wife and children, and all that he had, and payment to be made. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. And the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him the debt. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him a hundred pence. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me that thou owest. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. And he would not, but he went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt, because thou desiredest me. Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth, and delivered him to the tormentors, till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if you from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. This is talking about forgiveness, but again, forgiveness is an extension of mercy. It's an act of mercy to forgive somebody. So this is a very important lesson about mercy. You need to also realize that when Jesus is telling these parables, they are not just random stories to pass the time. They aren't empty of meaning or arbitrary in their purpose. Jesus tells parables to make a point about something critical that he was just discussing. It could be something doctrinal, could be something practical. Like in Peter's case, he was asking, how often should we forgive? Then Jesus not only responded with a somewhat concise answer, but then he immediately went to a parable that teaches a lesson about forgiveness and the nature of how great a debt it is that you and I owe, if you want to see what the parallels are, that God forgave us. So how big could somebody else's debt be that we wouldn't forgive them? That's really the point of that parable. It's to show you, you ought not to ever be thinking, where's the limit? When should I stop forgiving this person? There are some reasons why you probably shouldn't keep enabling somebody by continuing to let them do something. And we'll potentially talk about that a little later, or perhaps if we have to go into another class on this. We'll talk about the negative aspects. We touched on them last time, I believe, but we'll talk about them again. But generally, our approach, unless continuing to forgive a person would enable them to continue doing evil, most of the time, our approach to forgiveness should not be to look for its limits, because God wasn't looking for limits with us. If you're sitting here right now as a converted child of God, I didn't say born again, because that takes the Spirit, but I imagine nearly everybody in this building, except maybe the smallest of us, are born again by the Spirit as well. 
But if you're sitting here as a converted believer, then there couldn't be anything God wasn't willing to forgive. Have you thought about that? If there was something in your life that you did when you came to the Lord that he wasn't willing to forgive, you wouldn't be able to be in a relationship with him. So his forgiveness was big enough, his mercy was great enough that it did not mark out any measure of forgiveness for you. He didn't say, well, I'll forgive 99% of what you did in your past life. You understand what would happen if he forgave 99% of what you did in your past life when the Bible says the soul that sinneth it shall surely die? That means if God didn't forgive you of one single sin from your past, you'd still be under the sentence of death for that sin. Aren't you glad God didn't measure out or mark out the limits of forgiveness for you and say, I'll forgive this much. You did a lot in your past. I'll forgive 75% of it. What good would that do? When any sin will cause you to eventually face destruction, it would do no good for God to forgive anything less than 100% of your sin, would it? So that's pretty powerful. And so Jesus' point, you're going to see us again in some other statements he makes. Jesus' point here is that you should not put limits on your forgiveness. Other than, as I said, I'll give you some examples of things you can't just keep forgiving. If somebody is doing damage or they're injuring you, sometimes you might forgive it, but you have to get away from the environment. You can't allow the person to keep taking advantage of you or abusing you, or injuring you in some way. That's not a right application of mercy to think I'm going to sit here and let myself be abused forever, where even your life could be potentially in danger. That's not mercy. So we do have to examine those things. We will, but I'm going to focus heavier to begin with on the opposite side of the problem, which is usually what we have, and that is that we don't want to forgive certain things. We don't want to show mercy. We feel like we've had it up to here, whatever here is on you, your chin or your eyeballs, whatever the height is that you're underwater with some of the things people have done to you, or you're fed up with some of the things people have done or said or whatever the case might be. But unless we have a very valid reason why we cannot continue forgiving somebody, if somebody is seeking forgiveness, we need to be open to forgive them. Now, I did add a little qualifier in there, and we'll come back and talk about that more too. In most cases, they really do have to seek forgiveness. You know, God doesn't forgive you if you don't seek forgiveness. You say, well, Jesus died for the sins of the world. You're right, but the whole world hasn't entered into a relationship with God. The whole world hasn't been washed in the blood. You have to actually ask for forgiveness. You have to repent of your sins and ask for forgiveness. That is a necessary prerequisite of being forgiven. And it's normally a prerequisite of being forgiven when it comes to somebody else doing something to you, too. That's why you'll see sometimes that there's actually judgment involved if a person won't repent or won't change. Mercy doesn't keep getting applied to them if they won't change. But we do need to understand that if somebody does desire to change and is asking for forgiveness, we should extend it to them in most circumstances. There are times when somebody doesn't specifically ask for forgiveness that for us not to encourage the growth of a root of bitterness, we need to forgive them. Maybe they don't want to be forgiven. Maybe they think what they did is right, but you're going to have to let go of it or you're going to have a root of bitterness grow in you that's going to end up polluting you even though they're going to go on in their bad spirit maybe for the rest of their life, but you could go on with the Lord, but instead because of them, because you couldn't let go of what they did, you let a root of bitterness grow up in you that'll choke your spiritual life out. I think people often miss the full context of Peter's question, as I said earlier, and why Jesus gave him the instruction he did with this parable, because they don't realize the whole chapter is one longer interrelated message. Matthew 18 starts out with Jesus' disciples asking him about who will be the greatest in the kingdom in Matthew 18.1. 
That doesn't seem much related to this subject of forgiving people, but it's interesting how Jesus' message develops as this chapter goes on. So keep that in mind. It starts with them asking who will be the greatest in the kingdom. And then in Matthew 18, 2-5, Jesus uses a child as an example of the type of spirit that has to be possessed to be considered among the greatest in the kingdom, at least in God's eyes. And then in Matthew 18, 6-10, he immediately segues into a series of statements about causing offenses to others. Part of that is about causing offense to children. But it's very clear he shifts from just talking about natural children, in other words, young human beings, to talking about those who are young in the faith as well, if you're paying attention. And then he talks about having conditions in you that can cause offense to other people. So he starts off with the question that they asked him about who will be the greatest in the kingdom. Then he points to a child and essentially says, you've got to have a spirit like that child to be greatest in the kingdom. Then he starts to talk about not hurting or offending children. Then he pretty quickly segues into not having the kind of qualities in you that would be offensive to other people that thus would hurt them. Whether you're talking about offending or hurting little ones that are little children, or whether you're talking about offending or hurting anybody, which I do think is part of the bigger context. As I said, though I think he's initially referring to natural children, it could also apply in a secondary sense to people that are spiritual children, that aren't yet developed enough to stand steady and strong in their relationship with the Lord, and who might be easier offended by some things you might say or do. I've seen people come in the church that either don't have any background with the church, they don't understand the environment they're coming into. They might come into a church after they've been gone for a long time, and there's some things that they still need to get back in place in their life, and they may know that, but they walk in the doors of the church and almost immediately get jumped on over something. Even when they're not a regular member of the church, it's some new person coming in, and somebody jumps on them, whether a saint or, I don't say a saint when we say that. Sometimes we use the word saint for people in the church, but a saint means a holy one, so I don't know how holy a person would be if they were jumping on somebody. I mean saints not like the Catholic Church thinks of them. I mean saints of God like people of God. Somebody that's a true saint of God, a holy one, isn't going to be acting like that. They're going to have enough sense to realize this is a little one, whether it's a child or it's somebody that's a child in the faith, and they need to be treated a little gentler than you might treat an adult who might know better, might be doing something in a really pushy way or maybe trying to make a point. That child isn't trying to do that. Some young person coming to church isn't trying to do that. I mean, young in the Lord. So we need to recognize where people are at in terms of their relationship with the Lord and be more merciful to individuals that are younger. We should be more merciful to children because children are children. They're full of energy and spunk and all the things that go along with being a child. And I'm glad that people were merciful to me. I was a pretty wild child. I don't mean as a teenager. I was worse as a teenager than a child. But as a child, I could be a handful at times. For someone that was as shy as I was, I could be a handful. So be merciful. They're children. They'll grow out of it, I hope, if they learn the lessons they need to. But children just have more energy. They've got less attention span. There's a lot of things that cause them to need more mercy. But the same thing is true of a spiritual child. A spiritual child does not know what you know, just like a natural child doesn't know what you know. In so many different areas, intellectual, emotional, they don't have your experience. And a spiritual child doesn't either. So I believe Jesus, and there's a reason I believe this to be the case, because where he keeps going with this message, I believe Jesus is talking about more than just little children. It is very important you don't hurt little children. It's very important you take on the spirit of a little child. But you know, sometimes after we've been in the church a long time, you can watch somebody that's a little child spiritually come in the church. I mean, they might be 50 years old, but they're a little child spiritually because they're new and it's new to them. And you know how often, how innocent and excited they are about being there when they realize where they're at? You realize there's a lesson in that too for some of us who have been on the road a while and then we might, after a while, if we're not careful, take things for granted. We can often do that and devalue something that is extremely precious because we're so used to it. 
We're just used to having those things. Somebody else comes in, they're like, I can't believe this. I can't believe what I'm hearing. I can't believe what I'm feeling. And you're thinking, yeah, that's what we always hear and feel here. If you're not careful, you might be the one that needs to learn the lesson from some new believer that comes walking in the doors because you've lost your first love. You've lost your first flush of excitement about being in a relationship with the Lord and about what he's providing and all the incredible benefits that are in the benefit package being in a relationship with him. And you've lost the excitement of that courtship phase, so to speak, of your relationship with the Lord. You need to get your excitement back. And sometimes it takes somebody new coming in the church that's just on fire. They're thinking, I've never heard things like this before. Never felt anything like this before. It may get your attention. You think, what are they so excited about? I hope you're not thinking that. God forbid you'd think, what are they so excited about? But hopefully what it'll do is if you're starting to get calloused over in your own spirit in terms of you just get so used to the good things of God, it might cause you to think, this is something really valuable. This is something really special. I need to come back to my first love and reinvigorate myself in my relationship with the Lord. So there's layers. We don't want to offend any children. We don't want to offend natural children, little children. We don't want to offend or hurt spiritual children. And we do want to be like natural little children with that innocent openness that they have and that kind of faith that they have. I've given that example of my oldest daughter many times that scared the wits clear out of me when I couldn't find her. She was in the living room crawling around. She was getting a little more mobile and moving around a little more and standing up. And I lost track of her for a minute, got on the phone and had my back turned to her. And I turned around, she was gone. I thought, where'd she go? The living room had a staircase that went up about 13 or 14 steps, maybe, up to the second story. And I thought, I hope surely she's not climbing up that staircase. She wasn't climbing up the staircase. She'd already climbed up the staircase in about 30 seconds. And the time I got to the foot of the staircase, she was standing at the top of the staircase, looking down at me with the biggest smile on her face. And then she reached out her arms. And I thought, I don't know what she's reaching out her arms for. Don't go plunging down here towards me. As soon as I saw her reaching out her arms and leaning forward like she was going to take a dive, I started moving up those stairs faster than you've ever seen a man of over 200 pounds move up some stairs. I got about halfway up the stairs when she launched herself. She just said, Daddy, and leaped right into my arms. Thank the God of heaven. That's something you can learn from a child. You may not want to learn that lesson as a parent. I better keep a better eye on her. She's a lot faster than I thought she was. But the faith, there's the word, Brother Stevens, that's right. The faith she had, Daddy's going to catch me. She wasn't one bit worried about launching herself into the air because Daddy would catch her. I'd kill myself trying so she wouldn't get hurt. And she knew it in her little heart. You know, as we get older, we start questioning things, don't we? Well, maybe God won't take care of this. Maybe God doesn't love me. You know, we start to go through those things, whether it's about people or whether it's about spiritual things. But there's a lesson in the faith of little children that is so beautifully portrayed in that, at the time, fairly frightening experience I had, that she just launched herself. There was no doubt Daddy's got this handle. There's no doubt Daddy will catch me. There's nothing ever to be afraid of. You realize that we do have to have that same attitude about our Father? I'm talking about our Father in heaven. There's nothing He cannot protect us from if He chooses to. If God allows us to go through affliction, He could stop it. There has to be some lesson in it that we can learn, or there is something that it will do in us or through us that will be good for someone else, a lesson they can learn by watching us and how we handle things. And if we keep our faith and our faithfulness and our right spirit and all those things, you need to hold on to when you're going through affliction. There's a lesson you can learn from little children in terms of natural little children because of that just innocent faith that they have that is so powerful. It's more powerful in some ways than our faith as we get older when our faith starts to get strained some, thins out some, and we start thinking, can I have faith in that? Is that really true? Or can I depend on that? 
That is certainly, I think his primary point was little children, biologically young children. But I think he has a deeper point as well that even people that are children in the Lord, there's an excitement, there's an enthusiasm, and sometimes there's a skittishness, like a child that's shy or a child that's easily hurt, easily offended in some way. You can have the very same thing in the spiritual realm where somebody comes in a church that the worst thing you could possibly do is hit them with a hammer when they walk in the door because they're not strong enough to take it. And they might have been hit with a hammer in some other church they were in. And maybe they're coming looking and saying, is there a place I can go where I'll feel safe, where I'll feel secure? And they walk in the door and you hit them with a hammer just like some other minister hit them with a hammer. And they're like, I'm out of here. I'm not going to go through this again. How foolish would it be for you to hammer them the minute they come in the door with some doctrine or some demand that you're making of them, telling them you better do such and such? They're not at that point yet. It's like a little child. They need to understand. That's the other thing. You have to come to a point where you understand for yourself why certain things are the way they are. You notice as a child starts to grow, they ask that three-letter question a lot. Why? Why? Talk about sky's blue. Why? And then you got to either give them a pat, not have to go into great detail answer, or you're going to have to do some studying to figure out the reason for some of the very deep questions children can ask sometimes that to us seem kind of frivolous, but they're not frivolous. They really want to know. Why is it the sky is blue? Why is it things are the way they are? And when it comes to spiritual things, children have a right to know. If somebody's a child of God, they've got a right to know. If you have an answer, they've got a right to know. And if you're going to tell them you have to believe something, they've got a right to know why. They've got a right to ask you to show them in this book, because this book, I'm holding up my Bible, obviously, this book holds the reasons for what we believe. If you believe something that you can't find in here, then you better hold that with some pretty loose fingers, and you certainly shouldn't be demanding other people believe it. Same thing would go with things that you're requiring of people. You're demanding things of people that you can't find a bit of anything in the Bible to back up. You better hold that with some pretty loose fingers. You better not hold that with a tight grasp. You better not fight tooth and nail to hold on to some teaching or some practice that you can't even find in the Bible. I don't know how much I've been talking about that this last year or two. You have to go back to the Bible for everything you're going to base your beliefs and your practices on. If you can't find them in the Bible, you're inventing your own religion. If the body that you're building isn't the body that's described in the Bible, you're building your own body. Call it that. Don't call it the body of Christ. It's your own version of the body of Christ. Well, you said you don't have a reason. There's a variety of beliefs that can't be found in the Bible. It has no foundation. Or if it did, it, it expired with the law of Moses. That's right. There are some things that are simply not in the Bible at all, and there are some things that are not in the current dispensation that we're under. Meaning they might have been in a past dispensation, but they're not in the present dispensation. And you'll know that by studying the Bible, because you'll realize that nobody was doing that anymore in the New Covenant, or there's certainly no record of it, and nobody was commanding that it be done anymore in the New Covenant. And then you can look at it and see what its purpose was. Who was it for? Some Old Covenant dispensational commands were not for the world, they were for Israel. Some of the things Israel was supposed to do had nothing to do in their ritual, natural practice with the world. Their ritual, natural practice was a reminder to the Jews of some things they'd gone through. When they were fulfilled, they would have a picture for the whole world, though. We're right around the week right now of Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits. What generally is what we think of as Resurrection Sunday is the time of the Feast of First Fruits, the time Jesus rose from the dead after, on that first day of the week, after the week of the Passover. That has been fulfilled. Jesus fulfilled it. What we're doing is trying to live in the pattern of what he fulfilled, not trying to go back to the shadow that just pointed to it. We're trying to understand and live out the reality of what that shadow was pointing to. That's what's meant by types and shadows. 
A shadow is something that's shadowy. It's not clear. And it's not the real thing. It's just a shadow of the real thing. And when the real thing appears, the shadow doesn't have any value anymore. It's the real thing that has the value. When you've never seen the real thing, the only way to know where the real thing's at or to get some idea what the real thing looks like is to look at the shadow. But once the real thing walks around the corner and now you see, for example, a person instead of a person's shadow, you get a lot more detail, don't you? And you have the actual instead of the symbolic or the allegorical. That'd get us into another subject. There's a whole bunch of side subjects you get into in Bible studies that we could talk about. But talking about Matthew 18 here, I do think he was initially referring to natural children, but I think this also is applicable to spiritual children, and that especially reveals itself as he continues on in his statements. In Matthew 18, 11 to 14, he looks like he's suddenly shifting focus to the lost. But do you realize that people who are lost, who come to him, are spiritual children? So you see why I'm saying that I think there's layers to this, because I don't think he just suddenly changed subject. Oh, I was talking about little children, and now I'm talking about a brand new subject. I just changed the subjects entirely. If you read his statements, it doesn't look like there's any pause. It looks like he is continuing click, 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 right through a series of points. And if he suddenly segues, to use that word again, into the subject of the lost, that might tell us something important about what he's been talking about, at least another layer of what he's been talking about here. I don't think that was a sudden or some arbitrary or random change of subject. I believe it was all part of his overall message. And then immediately after his statements about the lost, he addresses what we should do when a brother trespasses against us. And he takes what at the most might be a slight side trail to define the process for correcting the condition and judging it if a brother has done something against us that needs to be corrected. In Matthew 18, 15 to 20, he goes into that. And then I might say as a brief aside that I do think it's important to note that even when a brother's trespassed against us, as he describes here, the goal is restoration. It's not this brother trespassed against me. I don't plan on ever forgiving him. So let's just bring the judgment. That's not at all the order. The order is you and your brother get together and you try to straighten this out. If you can't straighten it out, you get a couple people with you. And I told you, I think in one of our last classes, there's several reasons for that. It's not only that you might need witnesses, especially if he says or does something even more outlandish or doubles down on whatever he's doing, you might need witnesses. But it's not just witnesses for you. You might actually want to bring somebody that he would feel is a neutral person that doesn't have a conflict of interest, a person that loves both of you, that that person knows is someone who loves him. So it's not that he's getting ganged up on. See, that's the problem. When we bring a couple of people with us, the idea isn't to bring a couple of people with us to gang up on the person. We are still appealing to them to try to correct their condition. And on one side of the coin, as I said, we might need witnesses. You might need some witnesses, especially if he says, for example, I'll straighten this up. I'll do such and such and fix it. And then he doesn't. Then you know, it isn't just my word against his. Other people heard that he said he was going to correct this. On the gentler side of the coin, and I think both apply, sometimes you might want to have witnesses there that are somebody that would make him feel more comfortable. So he doesn't feel like he's being ganged up on. There's somebody there who he knows loves him as well. Because at that moment, if there's a problem between you and your brother, he may not know that you love him or he may not love you. But if there's someone else involved that he does love, it could help to temper the conversation, so to speak. So the point is, even in the little window of statements about judgment, which seem almost out of place when you consider all the context, they're not. But even in that little window of statements about judgment, the goal is reconciliation. The goal isn't condemnation or censure. Those things could happen if the person doesn't straighten up. It's clear if you talk to him and he won't correct the condition, then you and several others talk to him and he won't correct the condition. And then it gets to the point where it has to be addressed before the whole church. That's pretty bad when it's gotten to that point. 
But even at that point, if the person was finally shamed enough to say, you know what, I was wrong, you should open your arms. And here's exactly why Jesus is saying what he's saying in the next verses. You should open your arms and say, I forgive you. Even if he had been wrestling with you, you tried to get him to correct it, he wouldn't. He was rude to you, who knows? It may be that you get together with a group and he still won't straighten himself up, still nasty to you and still continuing to do offensive things. Then you call him out before the church and maybe that doesn't even straighten him up. And then you consider him a publican and a sinner. That doesn't mean you look down your nose at him. That just means if there is going to continue to be this kind of conflict and it's based on something that this person is doing, that they will not stop, you need to just separate yourself from that person. That's what it is to consider them that way. You consider them in a category that you would not probably want to be buddy-buddy with. That doesn't mean publicans and sinners don't need you to reach out to them and try to save them, but it ought not to be a buddy-buddy type of a thing where birds of a feather flock together, so to speak. We do have to reach out to people in situations like this, show them love, but you have to balance that with not getting caught up in the things they're doing and the spirit that they have. If you put too much favor on somebody, that's the same as accepting their lifestyle. That's right. There are some people that if you don't take a stand against some things, they will assume, and other people might assume too, that you're okay with what they're doing. That's right. So there's balance there. We can be too hard with it or we can be too soft with it. And unfortunately, we tend to go to extremes. I don't mean we, you and me, but humans tend to go to extremes, which means either we're too liberal or we're far too hard and unmerciful. But again, you realize Jesus is making a pretty strong point for being merciful. You'd be better off for someone to say that person is too merciful than for them to say the opposite. You'd be better off for a person to say they put up with too much. They shouldn't be putting up with all that. You won't be judged harshly by being merciful. But you might be judged harshly by not being. That's absolutely right. Some people who I was dealing with, that I was working with, ministers I was working with, who were not part of our body, who I was continuing to reach out to, who were spending as much time attacking me as engaging with me in a friendly way. And I think some people thought, you're being too merciful. You need to just cut these people off. You know, if I had done that, if I hadn't kept extending mercy, there's several people that I never would have brought to this message and to this people because I just kept extending mercy. There were times I had to be firm with them. There were times I had to tell them, you can't act like that. You can't talk like that. You need to straighten up. But I didn't cut them off and throw them out. I didn't stop talking with them forever. I kept on engaging with them. I kept on reaching out to them. And eventually I had several people who I imagine anybody watching them or listening to them engage with me thought this person will never change. This person is so rooted down to their false belief. There's nothing you could tell them to get them to shift. And they did. Over time, they did. You'd be better off being criticized for being too merciful than for being merciless. You can try to be more merciful than God, and God sometimes might stop you and say, you can't do that. There's something I'm dealing with that you need to let that person go through it because I'm trying to teach them a lesson or whatever the case might be. That doesn't mean you should be merciful to those that God doesn't want you to be merciful to. If God's saying, stay away from that person, I'm dealing with them right now, and I don't need anyone salving their wound or watering down the sacrifice, but that is the exception, not the rule. What if you had a problem with somebody that's not in the faith? Then how far does mercy go or does mercy go? I don't think we should have any less mercy for people outside the family of God than those in the family of God. Some people might say, oh no, of course not, Brother Bear. We should be a lot more merciful with the people that are children of God. If someone among the children of God who should know better needs your mercy because they're doing evil to you, that is worse, in my opinion, than someone that isn't even a child of God who's not part of your circle, not part of the family of God, doesn't even have your beliefs that might be treating you bad. It's worse for a child of God to be acting like a fool than it is for a pagan to be doing it. That's why so often in the Bible you see God judging Israel more harshly than he even judges the nations around them. 
Because Israel should have known better. You're saying, well, why didn't he destroy all those nations who were worshiping false gods? Why did he let them go on for centuries? They weren't his people. Israel was. Israel, he didn't let go on and on and on. Israel, he sent prophets to. He hammered them. There's times he did that with the other nations, but the majority of God's attention was on Israel. When Israel did wrong, it was worse than when the pagan nations did wrong because they didn't have the, as the scripture says, that he gave them the oracles of God. They were given the oracles of God, God's testimonies, his statutes, his prophecies. And yet they still did some of the things they did. If anybody shouldn't have been acting the way they were acting, it was the Israelites. Now, the same would be true for people in the house of God. I do believe we should show mercy regardless, all right? If mercy would not enable someone to continue to do evil or damage somebody, we should show mercy, if at all possible. But if we're going to compare showing mercy to people in the church versus people out of the church, somebody in the church who's done something so bad that you might have to forgive them for it is probably worse than somebody outside of the church. If they did something that was similar, they might deserve it more than someone in the church does because someone in the church should know better. It's not that they deserve it, but when you do some things in ignorance... You realize Paul said that? He said, God was merciful to me. We may get to that scripture. We won't probably do it tonight. The rate we're making on this, we're going to spend more time on mercy than any of these Beatitudes. And maybe there's a reason. It's a very critical subject in the Bible. It's critical because we need it, and it's critical because we need to develop it. And I'll come back to some of those other points maybe a little later. But it's right at that point, after Jesus is talking about how to judge cases and so on, that Peter asked this question about how many times should I forgive? So you need to realize the context. Go all the way back to the beginning of the chapter. Don't forget that context. But the most immediate context is Jesus is just talking about somebody that has hurt you, somebody that's offended you, somebody that has done something to you. They could have stolen something from you. They could have gossiped behind your back. There's all kinds of things someone could do that needs to be corrected. If someone said some false accusation against you and you know it's false and they know it's false, that is something that needs to be corrected. It isn't just something that can be ignored. Now, you might need to ignore it if they never correct it, but it is something that deserves to be corrected. If somebody stole something from you, it needs to be corrected, returned, or any other thing. Somebody did some damage to you in in all the different ways someone could do damage to you. Jesus used the example in the parable that any one of them could have related to of somebody that owed a debt, that that debt was forgiven them. They were in debt to their Lord, and it was a massive debt, a debt no normal laborer could ever pay. Any normal servant would ever be able to pay 10,000 talents, if you know just how much money that is. They received that mercy and they didn't show mercy to somebody else. Going back for a minute, Peter's question is related to somebody hurting you, somebody offending you, somebody taking advantage of you, somebody doing something that needs to be corrected. And how many times should I forgive this person? What you'd have to get out of that is that they must have been forgiven of it in the past if they keep doing it. If Peter's talking about how many times should I forgive, unless he's forgiving someone for something they're not repenting for and he just keeps forgiving them even though they don't repent, that could be. But as I said, most of the time, forgiveness is extended in response to repentance. So if somebody did something bad to you and then repented and then did it again, then repented, did it again, eventually you're going to start to get fed up, aren't you? You're going to be like, why should I keep forgiving you every time you ask me to forgive you when you keep doing the same thing over and over? That does happen in some cases. You'd have to ask yourself, at what point is enough enough? And Jesus is basically saying there isn't really a point that you should be looking for to say enough is enough. None of the preceding steps, I think, of this sermon that he's preaching through this 18th chapter on the treatment of other people was accidental or incidental for that matter. I think they're all very strategic. He's not talking about a bunch of different subjects. I think his overall theme is one thing, and that is how we treat other people. How you treat children, how you treat somebody that offends you, how you treat somebody that owes you something. Those all are one package of things. How we treat others. 
Even the fact that there's judgment packaged in there, sandwiched in there among all those things in that couple of verses, still has to do with how we treat others. When we've gotten to the point where there's another person who continues causing us injury, how do we properly address that? Even that is a lesson on how to treat others. But it's interesting that that lesson that some people cherry pick out and want to hammer home, talking about bringing judgment down on people, which this is the process of judgment, they don't seem to get the overall context that that statement about judgment is sandwiched between a whole lot of statements about treating people right, not hurting people, showing mercy, being forgiving. There's a whole lot more said in the 18th chapter of Matthew about forgiving people and treating them right, even when they may be immature in their age or in their spiritual development or otherwise, than there is about bringing the hammer down on them. There are just a couple verses in the middle that are basically addressing the fact that some people will not straighten up no matter how many opportunities they're given and no matter how much counsel they're given, no matter how many attempts are made, and then there does have to be a process to which that's handled. But notice that the overall theme is not that process. It's how to show mercy, how to forgive, how to treat people in a kind and compassionate way. So the lesson on forgiveness in the last part of the chapter, I think, is a direct descendant of the points that immediately preceded it. So we not only have to be compassionate in our interactions with little children in the natural realm, we also need to be compassionate with children in the spiritual realm. And it's interesting that Jesus packages in there the necessity of seeking the lost. I didn't go into that in detail when I broke down the pieces and parts of this message, but you realize one of his statements right in the middle of those statements about treating others is how we think about the lost. Are they a focal point for us? And by the way, somebody that's lost could be lost for a variety of reasons, but one reason somebody could be lost is because they've been hurt. If you read several of the rebukes that are made against ministers in the Old Testament in the context of watchmen or shepherds or other titles that are used for them, you'll find out when he rebukes the shepherds for their treatment of the sheep in several statements in the prophets, especially Jeremiah, Ezekiel, he stresses the point that some of the sheep have been driven away. Some of the sheep have been injured and they're not seeking the injured sheep. They're not seeking the sheep that have been driven away. That's one of our responsibilities as shepherds, those who fill that type of a role. And by the way, the minister of the church who is responsible for the church, which often we associate with the role of a pastor, though that isn't always the case. Paul was a lot more than a pastor, and he was responsible for a number of churches. The minister responsible for the church, that's the overseer, which is really what that Greek word episkopos that is translated in the King James Version as bishop is referring to. That's not just referring to one of the five offices of the ministry. There is no office of a bishop. It's the position of a bishop. You might have one or more of the other offices, but your position is an overseer. Somebody that's an overseer is somebody that should be watching out for the sheep. If a sheep is hurt, you need to find out why the sheep's hurt and if there's anything you can do to help with that hurt. Some hurts are just going to have to heal. There's nothing you'll be able to do about it. It's an injury that you may not have the technology or the skill to deal with, and you're just going to have to let time and other things and God work with it. But you can at least show love and compassion for the person suffering the injury. Some injuries are injuries God created, and you have to be very careful not to bind up injuries, as I said earlier, that God caused, because God might have caused that injury to make a point to get their attention. We have to be wise enough to know the difference. That said, you really ought to consider, and I would say this especially to ministers, how much weight is put on ministers that don't show enough mercy, don't show enough care for the sheep, mistreat and abuse the sheep, and I'm talking about from the Old Testament through the New Testament, versus ministers that aren't being hard enough on the sheep. 
There's times when the priests were watering down the word of God or they were acting in carnal ways, encouraging the people to enter into idolatry and other things. And certainly those were things God rebuked. But when it comes down to the things that ministers did that God rebuked them for the most, and even that Jesus rebukes the religious leaders for the most in the gospels, it's often that they're too hard on the sheep, not that they're being too merciful. You'll have an awful hard time finding any example of Jesus rebuking the Sadducees and the Pharisees for just being too merciful to the people. You'll find exactly the opposite. He was rebuking them for being too hard, demanding too much of the people, coming up with their own customs and their own laws that were the commandments of men that he rebuked them for, telling people you have to obey something that God didn't tell them they have to obey, telling people you have to do something God didn't tell them they had to do, holding them accountable to standards of righteousness God never gave in his word. And as I said, you can go back to the Old Testament and look at some of the rebukes that he makes of shepherds. He's not rebuking the shepherds most of the time because in the vast majority of his rebukes, because you know what? You're just being too gentle to the sheep. Someone needs to be a little firmer with them. He's rebuking the shepherds because they're being too firm with the sheep, too controlling, too abusive. And then when they've abused the sheep or they've injured the sheep with their wrong methods and their wrong order and the sheep are injured or hurt or they've been driven away, they don't even seek to take care of it. They don't try to fix the problem. It's like somebody that hurts somebody in an assembly and their response is almost, oh, well, they deserved it or too bad for them kind of a spirit. I don't know what kind of assembly you think you're going to create with those kind of methods, but certainly God, as I said, very consistently focuses on shepherds that are not merciful enough, shepherds that are not compassionate enough, far, far more than he does the opposite. Shepherds that just aren't tough enough with the sheep, which should tell us something very important. So we have a responsibility to seek the lost, sometimes lost in the sense they've never been found to begin with, sometimes found and lost instead of lost and found. We want them to be lost and found, but some people that become lost and then found were first found and then lost, unfortunately. They were part of the family of God, but they wandered out of the way. Something hurt them or they were pulled away by some temptation or something that undermined their commitment to the Lord or to the Lord's people and they need to be sought out. They shouldn't be ignored. They shouldn't be treated in a negative way. They should be sought out. As I said earlier, that's an act of mercy and that's part of what Jesus is referring to in this chapter. Seeking out lost sheep, isn't he? If some sheep has wandered away, you say, well, surely you'd be more concerned with the sheep that are still there in the fold, the people that are still there in the church. Of course you are concerned with them. You don't want a wolf coming in and attacking them. You don't want them to wander away. You've got to give them the amount of time and attention and care and provision and all the things that are necessary. But I'm sure the thing that would be most compelling you if you had lost a sheep is finding the one you lost. I realize this is something of a stark example, but if you had five children and you're walking around at the fairgrounds with your five children and one of them disappears, some little child that's a toddler disappears, you're going to still want to make sure those other four don't wander away and they're protected, but the urgency is going to be finding the one that just disappeared, wouldn't it? That'd be a horrible urgency that would come over you as a parent to think your child could be lost. The others aren't lost. They're okay. As long as they stay with you or as long as they stay in a guarded environment, they'll be fine. It's the one who's lost that you need to be concerned about. We should have a compulsion to be seeking out the lost, whether, as I said, they're found and lost in that they already were part of the family and wandered out or whether they've never been found. When we're dealing with people that are lost, whether it's somebody that once was a part of the flock or whether we're talking about someone that's never been a part of the flock, we need to do whatever is in our power not to needlessly offend or injure them. That's the point. We'll get to this verse a little later, but there are some people that you have to use compassion. That is the only way you're going to make a difference in their life. That's how it says it, making a difference. The only way you're going to reach them is with compassion. They are not going to respond to force. They will tighten up if you use force. They'll run away if you use force. 
You've got to use compassion. That's true of most people. There are some people who've gotten so close to the edge, they're about to fall off. You have to grab them by the hair of their head and with fear, pulling them out of the fire. But most of the time, compassion should be our first attempt. Unless they're about to get hit by a train, compassion should be our first method, shouldn't it? If somebody's outside the faith, you just walk up to them and start threatening their life. That probably isn't the first thing to do. First thing to do is reach out to them in love and compassion. If they won't respond to love and compassion, and you see that the danger is increasing in terms of what could happen to them that could destroy them, you may have to be more forceful in your interactions with them. Part of what Jesus is addressing is that God, like another verse says, doesn't want anyone to perish. It isn't his desire that any would perish. If that's the case, then even if we come to a point where judgment has to be passed in a case, like we find packaged in the middle of this chapter, where somebody has to be cast out, so to speak, as a heathen man and a publican, I think is how it describes him, even that person we want to see reconciled. It isn't like we are forced to have to disfellowship this person or cast them out or whatever other words you want to use for cutting them off from fellowship and from relationship. And isn't that nice? You never have to see them again. If that is your attitude, something is seriously wrong with you. Oh, thank the Lord. There's peace in Zion because so-and-so is gone. I didn't like them anyway. You should be hurting inside that it would have to come to the place where somebody would have to be cut off or somebody would have to be put outside the fellowship, so to speak. And we should be seeking to reconcile. Now, the only way to reconcile is for the person to come to themselves and recognize what they did is wrong. You can't reconcile with someone who's still continuing to do the very thing they were judged for. And I've watched this happen at times in the history of God's people, where somebody did some crime and they were judged for that crime. Let's continue to use this word, say they were disfellowshipped, and nothing ever changed except time passed. They never repented of it. They never tried to correct the people they'd hurt or whatever. And then years later, they're wanting to come back and be a part. Why would you think that would be acceptable? The reason that you were judged, you haven't corrected. Now, again, I don't want you to get the impression that we should be merciless with people. But if an individual has been judged for something that is an evil thing they've done and they're still doing it, and the judgment required you to disconnect yourself from that person for some reason, you can't reconnect until they have reconciled by repenting of what they've done, accepted their responsibility. So, as I said, there's sides of this. We do have to recognize that firmer side of this, but we also need to realize what I keep coming back to, and that is that the main emphasis of Jesus is showing mercy, which means in any case where it is possible, we should be trying to show mercy, and in every case, we should be trying to seek reconciliation. Paul had a situation, a man that married his father's wife. A man that had a relationship with his father's wife. Direct a case just like this. It's exactly that type of case. Yeah. And that man apparently was not willing to stop doing what he was doing. He wasn't repaying of it. He wasn't trying to cease from his evil. And so Paul advised them in a pretty strong series of statements, some of the strongest he makes to any church in 1 Corinthians, that they are to turn him over to the devil. He's to be cast out of the church. And he basically says, if I have to do it, it's going to be rougher. So it wasn't like Paul was going to come and be gentler with him. He expected them to deal with that condition. If this man is going to continue doing this evil, he can't be a part of this church. But then in the second epistle to the Corinthians, apparently something happened in those years in between those two epistles where it appears the man had reached back out to the church and he was sorry. That's the repentance that needed not to be repented of. He was sorry over what he had done. He wanted to correct his situation. He wanted to be accepted back in the church. And Paul, when he knew it was genuine repentance, Paul said, welcome him back. And if you read between the lines, he's saying, wrap your arms around him, show him love. If he's willing to repent of, make a reconciliation for the condition that he had done. Apparently he was. 
That is exactly my point, Brother Stevens. There is a person that you would think, we had to deliver that person over to Satan because of the things they were doing. Cast them out of the church. And then they come showing up again. Will you please let me back? I'm sorry for what I did. Paul practiced what he preached. He said, if he's coming back and he genuinely is repenting, open the doors and open your arms. That's mercy. The reason for mercy is this other word I've used several times the last few minutes, reconciliation. We have mercy so we can gain reconciliation. Mercy without reconciliation is not going to accomplish anything. We give people mercy so that we can be reconciled with them. If they won't be reconciled with us, that's what is packaged right there in the middle of the 18th chapter, where it says, if they won't listen to you, bring two or three more. If they won't listen to them, bring it before the church. If they won't listen to the church, they're to be considered like a heathen and a publican. That is if they will not be reconciled. But we should always be seeking to reconcile with them. And if they're willing to be reconciled, open your arms. Now, we're going to get to some examples probably next time where you can't just open your arms to somebody, even if they're wanting to be reconciled, if they have a track record of continuing to hurt you. If they have a track record of abusing you, for example, and you've forgiven them over and over again, they just keep abusing you. There's a point at which opening your arms and saying, come on back, do it again. Oh, I'm so sorry, I'll never do it again, when that's what they always say and they abuse you again. There's a point at which you have to realize you cannot continue to open your arms. You'll be enabling them because they know that person will always welcome me back. I've seen abusers in marital relationships like that where they're abusive and every time they abuse somebody in some terrible way, then they're, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I'll never do it again. I, I love you. I, I'll never do it again. And then they do it all over again almost the next day. And every time they lose their temper, they're assaulting their spouse. I mean physically assaulting their spouse. But every time, I'm sorry, I'll never do it again. And it happens again. There's a point at which you don't have to keep taking that abuse. It's not showing them mercy. Because continuing to open your arms to someone coming back to do that is enabling them to think, no matter what I do, I'll never lose this relationship. That's not helping them. That's why Paul said that man had to be cast out of the church. Because if the man could think he could just keep coming to church, living in that foul relationship with his father's wife, but you can't think that. You have to lose something sometimes if you won't correct your course. And then wanting to get that back, what you've lost, should cause you to correct your course and really correct it, which is what the man appears to have done and we hear about in the second epistle. Let's go back to Matthew 18, 21 to 35, where Peter asked his question, Jesus answered it, and then followed it up with this parable. There's no doubt that Jesus' statements preceding Peter's question are part of what instigated the question. And I think those earlier statements, as I've said several times already, are very relevant to Peter's question and to Jesus' answer and to the parable that follows that to give more detail in Jesus' answer. Do you realize the parable is like giving a second answer? The first answer is 70 times, seven times, meaning effectively, just keep on forgiving. Don't look for a boundary. That's really what it's saying. And then he backs that up by giving the parable of showing, again, what I said earlier, if we're going to compare ourselves, which I think is exactly what Jesus was doing, with this servant that had this great debt, that had their debt forgiven by their Lord, who is God forgiving us of our sins, what is too big for us to forgive? Nothing. Surely nothing. nothing. I'm going to give several quotes, as I sometimes do when I find somebody that's written something I think has a really good statement. On this issue, I don't know if I'll get to it tonight, but you'll notice that I'm going to quote the same people positively and negatively, which I don't often do. 
This will be a positive quote of John MacArthur. There's another quote he makes later about what it means from his theological perspective that the merciful will receive mercy that I'm going to quote to show you how skewed we can get in our ideas about salvation and why Jesus' statement that the merciful will receive mercy means exactly what it says. We shouldn't try to overcomplicate it or twist it in some other direction to avoid the theological consequences. But this quote I'm going to give you is something that I agree with. I'll make it clear when I'm quoting something I don't. MacArthur says, Throughout the discourse of chapter 18, Jesus was speaking about believers, whom he refers to as little ones, children, sheep, and brothers. From his reference to my brother, it is clear that Peter also was thinking about a believer when he said, How many times should I forgive my brother if he did something to me? End quote. I think it's important to understand this because it gives some insight into the mercy that we need when we're judging different kinds of cases, like you see referred to in Matthew 18, 15 to 20, as well as when the condition gets to the point where mercy can no longer be extended. You have to judge the condition. You can't just keep tolerating it, which isn't precisely the same thing as mercy, by the way, or forgiving it. You do have to judge the condition. I said this earlier, but though we might think Peter was looking for an out, you know, like, all right, when I get to seven, can I punch him in the face? Or when I get to seven, can I give him a dirty look, give him the evil eye, tell him I'm not forgiving you anymore, no matter how many times you ask from now on? That's not at all what I think Peter was actually doing, looking for a number of times before he had to stop forgiving. He might have actually been attempting to show that his measure of forgiving someone seven times was more generous than expected. Why some people haven't caught that is for two simple reasons. One, because Jesus immediately compares it with 70 times 7, so it looks like Peter is really talking about a very small number. And two, because a lot of people don't know the traditions of the rabbis regarding forgiveness. If you knew what the traditions of the rabbis were regarding forgiveness, it says a lot about Peter saying he would do it seven times. I'll quote MacArthur again because he explains this pretty well. He says, perhaps to demonstrate how magnanimous he thought he was, Peter suggested a limit of seven times. Not that he wanted a smaller number, but to show how merciful I am. I'd forgive him seven times, Lord. Which again, to us, when Jesus compares it with 70 times seven, sounds like Peter's saying a small number. But MacArthur goes on to say, using references in the book of Amos, Amos 1, 3, 1, 6, 1, 9, 1, 11, and 1, 13, and even comparing it with Job 33, 29, the rabbis had taken a repeated statement by God against neighboring enemies of Israel and made it into a universal rule for limiting God's forgiveness. Talking about the rabbis of Jesus' day had done this. And by extension, also man's meaning God only forgives things this amount of time, and man is only intended to forgive things this amount of time. He goes on to say, if God forgives men only three times, in some of the passages of the prophets where he said, this is how many times I'll forgive this, and then judgment falls, they said, well, that must mean that we shouldn't forgive more than that amount of times either. He goes on to say, if God forgives men only three times, they spuriously reasoned, it is unnecessary and even presumptuous for men to forgive each other more times than that. You can't be more forgiving than God, after all, right? So if God only forgave some of those nations three times or four times and then judgment fell, well, we better not forgive them more than that. Completely misunderstanding the point of some things. He quotes Rabbi Jose ben Hanina, who said, He who begs forgiveness from his neighbor must not do so more than three times. Rabbi Joseph ben Yehuda said, If a man commits an offense once, they forgive him. If he commits an offense a second time, they forgive him. If he commits an offense a third time, they forgive him. The fourth time, they do not forgive him. That was his advice to his students. You don't forgive somebody after they've done something to you four times. MacArthur finishes up by saying, Peter therefore probably thought Jesus would be impressed with the seemingly generous suggestion of up to seven times. Given that the rabbis in that day thought four was too many, Peter probably thought, I'm doubling that number. 
They say you can only forgive them three times. I'll forgive them more than double that. I'll forgive them seven times, Jesus. Look at me, how merciful and magnanimous I am. And then Jesus kind of undercut Peter's ego maybe a little bit, or Peter's whole purpose, and quite the opposite of what some people think, trying to come up with a small number so he could stop forgiving people. I think he was trying to say, I'll forgive people far more than what I'm even asked to forgive them, according to their skewed conception of the law. We're not to set a predetermined limit on the act of mercy that is our forgiveness, and we are to forgive people more than might seem necessary. We're to forgive not only more than is required, but we should do so more than sometimes might even seem reasonable. The use of the multiples of the number seven that often conveys completeness, perfection, the fullness of something, symbolically, I think may even allude to forgiving someone completely or forgiving them for everything they've done. They're doing some things, well, I forgive them, but only to a certain measure. I'll forgive some of what they've done to me. No, you forgive all of it if they're repaying of it. Or I'll forgive them if they've done it once, but I won't forgive them if they've done it again, or whatever the case might be. I think it's a fullness of repentance. The Lord, acting in mercy, acting with compassion, forgives a great debt that is owed by one of his servants. I'll give you another quote because I could explain this, but this quote does such a good job of explaining the stupendous size of this debt. David Turner said, The servant owes the king an astonishingly large amount of money, 10,000 talents. A talent was probably worth around 6,000 drachmas. You can see that from Matthew 17, 24, or denarii, which you can see in other places in Matthew, like Matthew 20, verse 2, or 29, or 10, or 13. And a laborer was paid a denarius a day. You see that in Matthew 20, verse 2. Thus, a laborer would have to work 60 million days, or roughly 193,000 years, to earn this much money. So is someone going to do that in their lifetime? It's not even possible. So Jesus truly did make an example that relates to our sin. There's nothing we could ever do to work off the debt of our sin. He goes on to say, the amount is hyperbolic. The unimaginably large amount here is intended to contrast with the relatively small amount owed this servant by his fellow in Matthew 18, 28. William Barclay adds to this. He says, the first servant owed his master 10,000 talents, and a talent was the equivalent of 15 years wages by his estimation. That is an incredible debt. It was more than the total budget of the ordinary province. The total revenue of the province, which contained Ijemea, Judea, and Samaria, the total revenue in a year was only 600 talents. The total revenue of even a wealthy province like Galilee was only 300 talents. Against that background, this debt is staggering. It was this that the servant was forgiven. The debt which a fellow servant owed him was a trifling thing. It was 100 denarii, and a denarius was the usual day's wage for a working man. It was therefore a mere fraction of his debt. In other words, he had a debt that would take you 193,000 years of working to pay off. The person who owed him, it would take them 100 days to pay it off, and he wasn't willing to forgive that debt. A.R.S. Kennedy has a really vivid picture that he used to contrast these debts. He says, suppose they were paid in small coins. And he, coming from a British background, he suggests sixpences, which you and I can't probably relate to, but we might think of it in terms of a dime, for example, something the size of a dime. The hundred denarii debt could be carried in one pocket. It'd be a heavier pocket, possibly, but you could pull that amount of money out of one pocket to pay off that debt. The 10,000 talent debt would take an army of 8,600 carriers to carry it, each carrying a sack of coins 60 pounds in weight, and they would form at a distance of a yard apart a line five miles long. 
And he goes on to say, the point is that nothing that others can do to us can in any way compare with what we have done to God. And if God has forgiven us the debt we owe to him, we must forgive our neighbors the debts they owe to us. Nothing that we have to forgive can even faintly or remotely compare with what we have been forgiven. Pretty powerful, isn't it? Then after being forgiven of this insurmountable debt, the servant goes out, as we read, and essentially calls in the debt on someone who owed him money. And when that debtor couldn't pay him, he had him cast into prison. And when the king discovered this merciless, compassionless act, he rebuked the servant, and then he turned him over to judgment. And then Jesus ends the parable in Matthew 18, 35 by telling Peter and I think the disciples in general that God will do the same to them if they don't. And notice the exact phrase he uses, from your heart, forgive everyone his brother, their trespasses. Anything we think is owed us, whether literally or figuratively by other people, even if we might be justified in believing that it's owed to us, pales in comparison to the debt of sin that God forgave us. Notice the qualifier that Jesus adds to our forgiving that I mentioned earlier when he says it's to be done from your hearts, which is to say that you have to have the kind of merciful spirit that would desire to forgive others and not to hold perpetual grudges or to count up the offenses that have been done against you, especially by people who may not even know that they offended you. I've seen people get deeply offended by somebody that may not even know they offended them. And that causes some of the worst roots of bitterness. I've watched it even happen in the ministry where one minister thinks another minister has said something behind his back or has attacked him or is criticizing him or attacking his doctrine or whatever else. And he never goes that other minister to actually talk to him about it, which is exactly what Jesus said you have to do. You go and talk to them. Instead, he develops a root of bitterness. And this could be true of any one of us saints, but I'm thinking of things I have actually seen in the ministry. Instead, he develops a root of bitterness, gets a grudge, gets a hatred towards that other minister, which then causes him to criticize, talk behind his back, and try to drive him down, when maybe the very thing he thinks that person was doing and attacking him, the person was never doing. Maybe he misunderstood that person. Maybe he misunderstood their motives. Maybe he misunderstood their words. Maybe he misunderstood the target of their statements. I've watched that happen multiple times in the history of God's people. And I know you've had things like that happen in your lives where somebody misunderstood something you said or did and held it against you sometimes for a long time. Sometimes it was something you said or did that was wrong, but you didn't really understand that it had offended them. Sometimes we can say things and we don't realize how hard we might be saying them or maybe how forcefully, and we don't realize how much offense they could cause. The healthiest thing you can do is tell somebody, do it gently. Don't try to cause a fight when you're doing it, but just tell them, you know, there was something you said and it really hurt me. The reason why so many times we don't do that, and if we were talking about ministers, this is certainly true of ministers that may not want to do it, is that it takes a little bit of a humbling of your spirit to have to tell somebody they hurt you. And the higher people get in leadership positions, the harder that is to say, you know, some of the things you've been saying are hurting me. I wish you'd stop saying them. It makes you feel weaker than that person if they could hurt you. But you'll be stronger and you'll be far clearer in terms of your conscience and any development of the growing of a root of bitterness in your heart if you get those things out in the open and deal with them. Peter's question doesn't clearly state whether he's forgiving somebody who asked him for forgiveness, you know, of some brother. He asked me for forgiveness. How many times should I forgive him when he asks me? Or if this is someone who never asked him for forgiveness. But I do believe that most of the time, this is talking about someone that's asked you for forgiveness. I don't believe all these types of statements in the Bible only refer to people who you forgive because they first repented to you. If you develop an unforgiving heart, that is an extremely detrimental thing to your spiritual development, even when it comes to people who are not even asking for your forgiveness. There's some people who, because they don't know that they've offended you or because they don't care, which I know it hurts when somebody knows they offended you and could care less, 
And sometimes you think they care less because you don't realize they don't even know they offended you. But I think in most cases, I'm going to say this probably for the fifth or sixth time, I think in most cases, the forgiveness we're expected to extend is in response to someone asking for forgiveness, repenting to us. But if that's the only time you ever extend forgiveness, you're going to develop quite a network of roots of bitterness in your life because there'll be all kinds of things that happen to you no one's going to ever ask forgiveness for. They either don't know they did it or they don't care. And if you're going to hold grudges over all those things, you may not look them in the eye and say, I forgive you without them repenting, but you need to forgive them in your heart. Again, that doesn't mean you're permitting them to continue doing it. You don't have to continue being in the environment or in the relationship, whatever that allows it to continue. But that does mean you need to clear your conscience. So you're not holding a grudge against somebody because they're going to have to clear their relationship with you and the Lord for them to ever be clear. You don't want to have something muddled in your relationship with the Lord because of something someone else did that you just won't let go of. And an unforgiving heart, saints, is a cold prison house. And there really is a great freedom in letting go of your ownership of the offense that someone else has caused to you by forgiving them, even if they haven't asked you for forgiveness. There's a great freedom in that. Oh, yes, it feels better yet when somebody comes to you and says, I know what I did was wrong and I'm so sorry. Of course that feels good because you can truly reconcile then, can't you? The point that I was getting at earlier. But there is a freedom in letting go of grudges. There's a freedom of letting go of a desire for revenge or reciprocity even if you never act on it. Having a spirit of reciprocity where you feel like something needs to happen to them. You may never do anything, but you might be praying God strikes them down or who knows what is going on even in your subconscious mind, some hatred that's being built up. You cannot grow in Christ with that kind of feeling in your heart. You have to clear your heart of those kind of feelings, sometimes by forgiving people and aren't even seeking forgiveness. There's several important insights, I think, that are communicated in this 18th chapter of Matthew, and in Peter's question, especially in Matthew 18, 21, and in Jesus' answer to it. To begin with, the overall context of Jesus' statements in this chapter are regarding the necessity for us to be careful, considerate, and compassionate, merciful, and forgiving in our interactions with each other. And mercy and forgiveness should be extended as long and as far as it is possible for us to do it. And if an individual trespasses against us, the goal is to seek reconciliation and not reciprocity or revenge. If an individual refuses to resolve the situation after multiple attempts on your part to appeal to him, and even with multiple other people involved, and even if it goes to the level of the whole church, and no matter what is done, no matter what appeals are made, they will not be led to repent or to recompense whatever they've done, they may have to be considered in the category of an unbeliever and effectively under judgment. That said, though, as I've repeated multiple times, we always should be seeking to restore our relationships and to bring reconciliation. And that would have to include his desire to see those who are under judgment restored if they come to repentance. And then don't miss the fact that the strong statements regarding judgment in Matthew 18, 15 to 20 are bookended, as I said earlier, sandwiched on both sides by similarly strong statements about not offending others, trying to restore and not destroy the lost, being merciful to those who offend or trespass against you, forgiving other people well beyond what would seem required or even reasonable, and then the pinnacle of all of his points in his parable that if we've been forgiven much, and we certainly have been forgiven much, haven't we? And our own carnal recidivism has led us to continue to accumulate debt that God's forgiven in spite of us not deserving God's mercy. And none of us do deserve God's mercy. Surely we would be willing to forgive others just as generously.